The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later today, we'll talk about what's probably the most radical show that's ever been on TV. Exterminate All the Brutes, the four-part, four-hour documentary about colonialism and genocide. It's playing now on HBO Max. Historian Robin Kelly will comment. But first, Democrats, Israel, and Palestine. Joe Biden's Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, arrived in Israel on Tuesday for his first official visit with Bibi Netanyahu and also with Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah. Before Blinken left Washington, Biden declared a, quote, ironclad commitment to Israel's security. At the same time, many Democrats in Congress and outside of Congress have been moving away from unquestioning support for Israel since the Israeli attacks on Gaza last week. For that story, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent. We reached him today at home in Madison. Hi, John. Hey, John. It's good to be with you, my friend. Well, first of all, you have some news about one group of Democrats moving on Israel. Yeah, in fact, in many senses, the group of Democrats that uh, perhaps we should pay the most attention to, and that's the young generally young activists who kind of power the party, the people who work the campaigns and staff the offices and do the digital communications and everything. 500 staffers, former staffers for the Biden for President campaign and for the Democratic National Committee, working at the national level and in the states, signed a letter on Monday in which they demanded that President Biden rethink his approach to uh, Palestine. And the letter was very, very pointed, uh, nuanced in a lot of ways. It recognized that both Israel and Palestine have suffered violence in the last couple of weeks, but it pointed out the disproportional suffering of Palestinians. And it also spoke at great length about the history of uh, Israeli occupation, and uh, Israeli policies that have been damaging to the Palestinians. Yeah, I thought the key to their letter, as reported in your piece uh, at thenation.com on Tuesday, was that the letter from 500 campaign staffers urges the Biden administration to, quote, take concrete steps to end the occupation in pursuit of justice, peace, and self-determination for Palestinians. That's perfectly clear. These are people who 
to talk about the values that brought them to the 2020 campaign. And remember, a lot of these are relatively young activists. And why did they put their lives on hold for months, even a year, uh, to achieve an election result? It was not merely to put Joe Biden in the White House or to make sure that Democrats won the House and Senate. That was important. But it was also uh, to advance a set of values and ideals, commitments to human rights. And, and I think that, that what's striking about this moment is we're also seeing a, a lot of members of Congress, Democratic members of Congress, speak up as well. And that brings us to your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul, that you won't get from Sean Hannity. St. Paul's representative, I'm sure you know her well, is Betty McCollum. She has introduced a historic bill, the Palestinian Children and Families Act, which challenges the U.S. government and the Biden administration, which have for years given billions of dollars in military aid to Israel, right now $3.8 billion a year. Betty McCollum's bill in the House says, U.S. assistance intended for Israel's security must never be used to violate the human rights of Palestinian children, demolish the homes of Palestinian families, or permanently annex Palestinian land, quote, quote. Uh, And she... uh, in this bill, insists on the right to safety, dignity, and freedom for the Palestinian people, close quote. She introduced this not last week, but on April 15th, before any of this began. Her bill's been endorsed by dozens of organizations, and the original co-sponsors are pretty much the progressive leadership of the House. I mean, Rashida Tlaib, Mark Pocan, Ayanna Presley, Jamal Bowman, Cori Bush, AOC, of course, Ilhan Omar, of course. So that is kind of the leading edge of the progressive Democrats on this. Well, we've spoken about the young people uh, who are stepping up. It's also notable that one of the older members of uh, Congress has, has been speaking up, uh, and that's Bernie Sanders. And and I, I think that that's a notable reality in that um, you have people who identify now as progressives, who are sort of the the leading figures in progressive politics at the national level, taking a clear stand, saying that there has to be some understanding of the need to address injustices to Palestinians, uh, historic injustices and current uh, crises, and that you can't just go back to the status quo. And I think that uh, Representative McCollum's bill is an example of that. And it's notable that she's been moving bills on some of these issues for quite a while. Yes. Uh, Often in a relatively lonely circumstance. But now she has a lot more allies. And frankly, uh, I interviewed Congressman Pocan about a moment a week or so ago when during the Israeli airstrikes on Gaza and the Hamas uh, strikes on Israel, a group of members of Congress went to the floor of the House to speak specifically about the need to have a much greater focus on Palestinian rights. And Pocan, Mark Pocan, the uh, former co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, uh, now the co-chair with Barbara Lee of a caucus seeking to reduce military spending, uh, Mark Pocan said that he had prepared long remarks because, frankly, he felt that he would have to, he might have to fill a lot of time. As it turned out, he didn't have to fill a lot of time 
there were so many members who had come to speak that he barely got to deliver his remark. He, got, he gave a, a, a brief statement. So this is not just Mark Pocan and AOC and uh, Rashida Tlaib and, and Ilhan Omar. There was a, a second group of Jewish members of the House, led by Jerry Nadler of New York. He's got the district with the most Jews of any in Congress. It was signed by other well-known uh, people like Jamie uh, Raskin and also Dean Phillips of suburban Minneapolis. These are people who did not sign Betty McCollum's bill, who organized their own letter separate as Jews, as Jewish members of Congress. A very clear and strong letter that declared, as Jerry Nadler wrote in the New York Times, the only solution is one where both Jewish and Palestinian people have a right to self-determination and security. I think it's unprecedented that there would be a group of Jewish members of Congress speaking up in that way in a situation like this. I think that this reflects something that's happening in the Jewish community. And uh, we have seen the work over many years of J Street and other groups, uh, which have uh, worked to open up a dialogue here and have encouraged a, a, a much kind of broader discourse within the Jewish community and beyond the Jewish community about how the circumstance in Israel-Palestine at this point uh, is not good for Palestine, of course, that's obvious. It's also not good for Israel. And we are now seeing some of the next stage where you're seeing members of Congress and prominent uh, leaders across the country speaking up uh, in the Jewish community, in the Muslim community, in the Christian community, uh, in you know, among Israeli Americans, among Palestinian Americans, saying, you know, look, this just hasn't worked. The, the U.S. approach up to this point has not been successful. And it may have been summed up by an op-ed that Bernie Sanders, who obviously former uh, Democratic candidate for president of the United States, the runner-up in the last two presidential races for the, de- races for the Democratic nomination, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in which he said, the U.S. just cannot be uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, apologist anymore. And it certainly isn't going to get us to peace. So, Bernie, we expect to take the lead on this question. But it's notable that Bernie is hardly alone on this in the Senate. The youngest and the newest senator, who is also Jewish, is John Ossoff from Georgia. And he organized a letter last week signed by 29 senators, that's more than half of the Senate Democrats, calling for an immediate ceasefire. This was well before Biden moved on this. We expect a lot from Bernie. I had not expected this from John Ossoff. Very interesting that you point that out. Uh, A couple of things to note here. Number one, John Ossoff uh, got his start as an aide to John Lewis uh, and has spoken frequently about how much he was influenced by John Lewis's a deep commitment to international human rights and to uh, to justice, both in the U.S. and abroad. But there's another element as well here, and I think there is a generational reality that's playing out. As you say, Bernie Sanders, uh, one of the older members of the Senate, taking the lead on progressive issues and on, on this one as well. And there are a number of other older members who have in the House and Senate. But you're especially seeing a new generation of Democrats in the House and the Senate, many of them much younger, uh, who are very outspoken on this issue. 
who come from uh, experiences that lead them to believe that their commitment to justice in the United States must also have an international side to it. And uh, what's striking is, I think this brings us full circle to the letter from all of the uh, former Biden staffers and DNC staffers. Again, disproportionately younger staffers, uh, people from Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Palestinian American, Israeli American backgrounds and their allies, uh, all saying, you know, this just doesn't stand. And, and, and believing that it is possible within the Democratic Party uh, to say to a Democratic president, you've got this wrong. Now, nobody is going to suggest to you for a second that Joe Biden hasn't thought a lot about Israel-Palestine, I mean, for decades. But Joe Biden came of age politically in another time. I think what an awfully lot of uh, young activists and younger members of Congress are saying to him is, uh, you really need to, to pause and think about uh, how not just circumstances on the ground in Israel-Palestine have changed, but also how circumstances in the United States have changed. And as uh, Heba Mohammed, one of the authors of the letter, uh, the activist who is uh, an author of the letter, said, he said, you know, look, it's time to catch up with the reality that the American people and the grassroots of the Democratic Party want a different policy that is respectful of and understanding of the need to defend Palestinian rights. John Nichols, you can read his piece, More Than 500 Staffers Who Got Biden Elected Demand That He Defend Palestinian Rights. That's at thenation.com now. John, thank you very much. Great talking to you today. Pleasure, John. Always good to be with you. Now it's time to talk about colonialism, slavery, and genocide. That's the subject of the four-hour documentary, Exterminate All the Brutes, made by Raoul Peck and streaming now on HBO Max. For comment, we turn to Robin D.G. Kelly. He's Distinguished Professor of U.S. History at UCLA. He studies social movements, black intellectuals, music and visual culture, among other things. The author of many books, I think my favorite of all of his is Thelonious Monk, The Life and Times of an American Original. I also loved his podcast, Errol Garner Uncovered. He's written for the New York Times, the Boston Review, and The Nation. And he's at work now on a book on the historical background of the Black Spring protests of 2020. Robin Kelly, welcome back. Thank you, John. It's always great to be in conversation with you. Four hours on 400 years of colonialism, slavery, and genocide. This is not Ken Burns' history. I think it might be the most radical thing that's ever been on TV. Yes, I think that's probably the case, certainly on HBO. You know, the strength of the series is the way I think that um, Raoul Peck, in his very personal essay, connects the past and present. Uh, this, this idea that the catastrophe of the past is still with us uh, and that we have to resist that, to me, it's quite powerful. And it's essentially 500 years and four hours. You know, the first response is like, oh, that's not enough time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he feels the same way. He wanted yes. to do 15 hours, I've read. Exactly, exactly. Which is, 
which is why this I see this as really an opening or beginning, an indictment in many ways on the way popular histories have been told. Uh, and so, you know, it's in that sense, it's, it's very moving. It's also a kind of a personal thing. Peck himself talks a lot in his own voiceover telling us what he has learned, what he has concluded. And he puts himself in the story. He says, I am an immigrant from a shithole country. How did you like the voiceover, Peck putting himself in the middle of this? Um, I actually like his voice, meaning this is not a documentary. So there are no talking heads. Uh, there's occasional other voices that come in. He uses the, um, uh, the device of the reenactment. But basically, he's closed off other opinions to make it a personal story, which I think is a bold thing to do. He's also unique, and this comes out clearly in the film, uh, as someone who is quite cosmopolitan, whose family uh, is very diasporic, but also international, but who's also a filmmaker, who's, who's I think he made over 20 films at least, on topics that lay the foundation for this film. In other words, he prepared for this. Um, his film on Lumumba, his, his film on the genocide in, in Rwanda, his films about Haiti, his film, The Young Marks. You know, all these films in many ways are examinations, whether it's intimate or from a kind of helicopter perspective of capitalism, colonial violence, the uh, consequences of exploitation and the intimacy of these relationships across class and color and, and, and status. That's why throughout the film, he's incorporating his own films and clips from it, not because of ego's sake, but I think because it, it drives the narrative in many ways. Yeah, one of the things I like best about it is the juxtaposition he makes with different kinds of materials. In episode three, he recounts the story no, well known to people like you and me of Winston Churchill as a racist colonialist. He quotes uh, Churchill's gleeful depiction of the British slaughter of thousands of Sudanese in 1898. And then he moves to a scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark where Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones just casually guns down an Arab with a sword, which is supposed to be funny. I thought those kind of juxtapositions, bringing horrors of the past to our world of media were terrific. I wonder what your favorite parts were. Oh, well, I, I, I also like the way he did that. In fact, I think it really matters his appropriation of popular culture or his critique yeah. of popular culture because this is how we learn history. For, for those of us in the Guild, there was nothing in the, in the four hours that kind of like, you know, surprised anyone. This is, basic, this is basic history for those of us who do history, you know, for a profession. For those of us who actually do history but actually have a perspective on it that is critical. I could say, dare I say radical, but a critical perspective. Now, having said that, I think for me, I think the, the best and most disturbing parts have to do with, well, a couple things. One, in episode three, he talks about the way in which warfare becomes industrialized, you know? So you have the story of migration, story of, of trade, the story of how the 
as the the earth, as the world, I should say, not the earth, but as as um, social relations on the planet gets smaller through settler colonialism, warfare becomes not just more brutal, but it also becomes more distant. Technologies allow for distance. And here he's actually drawing on uh, Sven Lindquist's um, other book, which I don't think is mentioned, A History of Bombing. And so he, it, the sort of episode culminates with the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, you know, what we know is that this kind of industrial killing is fundamental to understanding the Holocaust. It's fundamental to understanding the way in which um, settler colonialism doesn't disappear, but it takes on uh, a, a completely new, um, expansive uh, power based on technology. And one of the things that's unique about Sudan in the, is the invention of the Maxim gun, I guess the Maxim gun, yeah. um, or the Gatling gun. Either one, I think it's the Maxim, but it's basically, it's a machine gun. And industrialized killing is, is part of what Theodore Adorno says, you know, the history of humankind is not the march from barbarism to civilization, but the slingshot to the atom bomb, mm. you know, and that is we create better weapons to do uh, more damage. And, but what's specific is, is that those, that those weapons allow for a distance and juxtapose that with these reenactments with Josh Hartnett, who can never, because he is like the everyman colonist, the everyman, you know, um, uh, military force for colonial order, he has to face the brutes face to face. You know, there's, there's an intimacy there. There's no distance in the same way. So this is a documentary about genocide perpetrated by whites against people of color. It's also, as you have suggested, about the role of historians in justifying that genocide. Peck says the story was told the wrong way. So this is about our predecessors in the history profession. Yes, it is. Historians, sociologists, anthropologists, all the social scientists are complicit uh, in, in this story. You know, there's a scene where he's, you know, one of the characters is giving a lecture on race science, basically on, on brains and on, on difference in bodies. I mean, these scholars uh, were not just quacks, but they were the head of the American Anthropological Association. Mm -hmm. They were professors at Harvard University. They were considered the leading thinkers of the day. There's that, but then there's also those complicit in, in war and warfare. Um, and again, a major theme throughout the series isn't just exploitation. In fact, it's not really about, uh, not so much about extraction of wealth. I mean, that's, that's a given. It's about violence and colonial violence. And so, in terms of the creation of American military might or Western military might as a whole, um, the greatest minds, you know, I put that in quote, to design these systems of, of mass destruction. They, they, the, the greatest planners, you know, urban planners, geographers, created the condition for this invasion and occupation and subjugation. Um, and so there's a lot of history there. Historians and social scientists over the last century or two who have created the ideology that has justified this, but there's also a counter history that has developed in the last few decades. Exactly. And I think that what 
uh, Peck is trying to do is draw on that counter history. Um, here's my concern. Or maybe it's a critique of the film itself. So he okay. uses th three texts. Michel Rothschild's book, Silencing the Past, which is basically about the erasure of the Haitian Revolution from the great bourgeois democratic revolutions of the 18th uh, and early 19th centuries. Uh, he uses Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's book, uh, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. And he uses as really the key text, uh, Sven Lindquist's uh, book, The Swedish Historian, uh, Literary Scholar, uh, Exterminate All the Brutes, which is the line from Conrad's novel. And you know, one of the, I mean, you could talk about all three, but let me just start with Sven's book. A central thesis of the four-part documentary is that colon that fascism, the Holocaust, has can trace its origins to colonial violence. And this is one of the points, this is a central thesis of, of Exterminate All the Brutes of, of Lindquist's book. However, it's not an, a new idea. In fact, I would argue that the framing for the whole series is not that book, but it's actually M.A. Césaire's Discourse on Colonialism, which was published in 1950, which he says, you know, that basically what fascism was, was the application of colonial uh, methods of violence to the metropoles, to Europe. Uh, as he puts it, you know, colonial procedures that have been reserved for the Arabs of Algeria, the coolies of India, and the Blacks of Africa. And it's not just Césaire. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois in the world in Africa basically says, like, there's no Nazi atrocity that, that hasn't already been practiced on the colonies, on, as he puts it, on colored folk in all parts of the world, all in the name of and for the defense of a superior race born to rule the world. Uh, Ralph Bunch says something similar, certainly Hannah Arendt. In other words, you know, we've inherited tradition where this was the common knowledge, the understanding. When people were debating on the definition of genocide, um, when they were thinking about this, they were saying, look, you look at the, the history of settler colonialism in the U.S., in, throughout the Americas, the violence against indigenous peoples, the enslavement of others, all that, the, the violence against Herero in uh, Southwest Africa under the Germans, they've been practicing this. So it's not an aberration. And this goes back to Adorno again. It's not an aberration. And to me, I, I, I was a little bit disappointed that, that there were all these, especially Black scholars who had been thinking about this for a long time, who end up being kind of pushed out of, of the story. One other thing about historians, um, the historians he chose are people who are movement people for the most part, especially Roxanne. Yeah. I mean, I would love to have heard about uh, Roxanne's story as an activist in the American Indian movement and uh, organizer in the International uh, Indian Treaty Council, an anti-war activist, someone who grew up in Oklahoma, which was said a colonial territory, but also Indian territory and also the territory of black towns. I mean, and what it meant for her as a revolutionary to do this work. And the same with uh, Michel Valtriot. So it's not an accident that someone like a Césaire or a Du Bois or, um, uh, or, or, or a Ralph Bunch or all these figures would come out of anti-fascist work 
to come to this conclusion, anti-colonial work to come to this conclusion. So the question we're left with are big questions like, you know, why did the United Nations not declare colonialism a crime against humanity? Did, did, did we have to wait for this film to actually recognize it? You know, what, what was the history there? Um, and so there's so much of this that I think uh, ended up being pushed out because it was such a personal narrative. And one last thing I should say, uh, and that is the story of Rwanda was a little bit unsettling to me because of the way it was presented. So here's, you know, Raul Peck uh, did this amazing film about the genocide in Rwanda, which actually connects colonial violence, earlier colonial violence, to the genocide. But as it's presented in this film, I guess purposes of, of time or space, it's presented as, uh, as parallel, as like another story similar to the, uh, the Nazi Holocaust, as opposed to a product of, the, of that colonial violence. And those kinds of things, I think, might be lost on a general audience who will come away with an argument about equivalency. And that, to me, is something that um, I don't think he's trying to do, but it may come across that way. Any last thoughts about the relevance to today, this week, this year? Yes. The, the glaring absence in the film, especially given what's happening now uh, in Palestine and Gaza, is the absence of Palestine in the story. Uh, and I think that if you're going to talk about settler colonialism, bombing, violence, the absence is glaring. And I just found it tragic that the one, the one reference to Palestine was, uh, he mentioned an 18-year-old Palestinian girl who detonated herself in Tel Aviv and then told the story kind of without context. And then he says, yes, it's complicated. And it's not so complicated, but that to me was the biggest failing of the film. The big question I have about this is, this is such strong stuff. I think it may be too strong for many viewers. And so my question is, who is this for? Uh, I think what he's trying to do is reach a general public to introduce the history of settler colonialism and colonialism as a whole to a new audience. And I think a lot of the young activists who are in the streets, a lot of the people who loved I'm Not Your Negro, that's the audience. But it's not gonna, it's not gonna be like a mass transformative thing given how, how strong and how unyielding the message is. Exterminate All the Brutes, the four-part documentary, is streaming now on HBO Max. Robin Kelly, it's been great talking with you today. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. 
I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.